Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking, Debbie Biaki. Welcome aboard. Today, we'll be taking a flight over Nature's View, a 2030 climate journey story. Kicking off from Nairobi, making a stop at food production. Maybe another stop as well at fertilizers and storage. I hope you enjoy this climate journey story. Sit belts on and wheels up. Something that we all love—a food glorious food, food glorious food. If you know honestly where this excerpt is from, I think we go way back, <laughs> ice age. Anyways, I came to take a deep dive and possibly interest in the food industry after attending a plenary session in Nairobi about it, and it was organized by—I'm not shouting out to them—but it was organized by Root to Food, and they had such a huge conversation about food and the dynamics of power and politics involved in the food industry, which I took a bit of interest and went ahead to research on. That's why we have a whole dedicated episode on food production and climate change. We were such a nice plenary. We even had a comic book with a hypothetical saga and the politics that played. It was a great plenary and day to actually think back. We also had like samosas and (laughs) tea afterwards. Anyway, let's get into it. What role does climate change play in developing, planting, harvesting, storing, selling, and generally just placing a plate of food on the table? As I realized, it takes much more time and process to get a simple balanced meal on the table. And we should recognize and appreciate all the efforts and the key parties that play into placing a balanced meal on the table. By the way, when I say balanced, I also include fruits in it. And <laughs> some of y'all, including my friends, hardly take fruits. Please, let's have fruits. Anyways, so if we start talking about food, we have to take the various aspects of it. And I hope I will manage to capture a lot of it as we go through. So from the root of things, no pun intended, let's see how the food conveyor belt actually works. If I may give you um, a little bit of statistics, which is very important to remind ourselves who actually feeds the majority of the population on planet Earth, which, by the way, I also found out a few days ago. This is April of 2023. So a few days ago, actually, India is now leading in the world population as opposed to China. There are, I think, 1.4 billion over that, which is crazy. So you can imagine how much food and resources that will be needed to feed such populations in the next 10 to 20 years. So food production and climate change is something we have to really talk about. So here are the statistics. It's the peasants that actually, quote-unquote peasants, that feed the population. They feed the equivalent of 70% of the world's population using less than 30% of the world's land, water, and agricultural resources. Which is honestly such a conundrum. How can 70% of the population be fed and rely only on 30% of the land, water, and resources for agriculture. This also brings the, the notion of climate change and how we are over-exploiting the land instead of actually spreading it out and diversifying how we can produce food more sustainably. But anyway, at the end of the day, we are alive by God's grace <laughs> because this math doesn't make sense at all. So for food to end up on the table, there are various factors put into it. Walk with me. Let's start. The seeds, the quality of the seeds, in fact... 
the soil and its quality in terms of fertility and then what nuts are going to eat, how to make it more fertile or how to induce fertility. We will actually speak about that a little bit. Our big word, of course, climate change or the patterns and the patterns in planting. It's not like planting seasons, especially in my country. We have two major planting seasons, sometimes one, depending on the on the region you're in. So climate change also, if we have a planting season that's not quite predictable in terms of rainfall and all that, so how do we go about it? The water and the irrigation systems, the fertilizers, and this is something quite churning, especially seeing the harm it brings. And maybe if we have time in the end, we could speak more about fertilizers and their poisons. Also linking all of this to the previous episodes on biodiversity loss. We are actually killing the rest of the life in in regards to soil and agriculture in the name of killing weeds. That in, is in insecticides or in the name of fertilizing the soil. We're actually just benefiting the crops and not the, the supported lives by it. Anyways... The insecticides to keep the bugs away, the harvesting, the storing. In my country, we usually have frequent sagas on moisture content in the storage facilities, and that brings the scares of aflatoxin and the, the poisons that boil out of that. It's a whole sensitive topic, really, to talk about food. Then the packaging and the processing of the food, and finally into the consumer market and on your table in form of a plate. So this is a whole rundown on how food production happens, and let's get into it. So what happens if... All these conditions, starting from the seeds, the water, the climate, the fertilizer, the insecticide. What happens if all these conditions are not right? And as human beings currently had numerous spikes in lifestyle diseases, all of this being related to how we consume food, what food we consume, and how it's been made generally. And all this being numerous concerns, but also symptoms of what is actually wrong in the food industry. We have a lot of health issues, but as I'm calling them, these are just symptoms of what is actually happening in the food industry because that's what we are consuming daily. I will try to point out uh, the issues we need to be aware of and by this raise awareness on how we could improve and help the so-called peasants who are feeding more than half of the planet. How could we be supportive to their cause and make that burden less of a burden to them and empower them so we can also be empowered health-wise and also food-wise. So here goes. The best seeds need to be home or locally developed seeds. As per each country, we have different populations and different population needs, different climate zones, climate areas. So the best seeds are those that are developed locally with the instances and the background checks of the local place being in perspective. For example, we have different climatic zones in my country and... The seeds, the maize seeds, maize being our staple food, the maize seeds grown in the western side of our country are those suitable for that side because it's usually rainy and the eastern region of my country is dry. So we have drought resistant maize seeds developed specifically for that area. So when it comes to growing food and seeds, we don't have more of one size fits all, not only in different regions of our country, but different countries of the planet as well. So the seeds need to be locally developed and grown. The health of the soil usually needs and also depends wholly on the fertilizers and the pesticides and all the chemicals we put into it. 
I will, by the way, attach more or less. It's like a real life documentary or movie that's available, I think, on Netflix or whatever that brings to light all the issues that come with fertilizers and pesticides and how we're damaging not only the soil, but ultimately us and all the cancers that are going around. This will be a great avenue for you to understand how the food we consume actually is the one (laughs) killing us. So I recently saw and also applaud the government of Tanzania for returning to organic fertilizers as a country. This is more or less of animal manure and compost manure. And for a whole country to decide they're going back organic, that would be so nice. In my country, I don't think we have such a platform yet to have such a conversation in terms of going back to organic manure because it's possible. And the fertilizers and pesticides industry is a whole money-making, money-minting industry. So suggesting such things, especially in my country, would be such a buzz and a conundrum. But anyways, I will still applaud those people that are trying to go back to the organic side. But listen, if you grow your own vegetables and food at home, which you should... Quit buying chemical fertilizer. This is like across the world for anyone listening. Quit buying chemical fertilizer. It's not that much healthy. And most of the effects are actually not printed on the papers. <laughs> so you, you're you safer going with a compost heap. Build a small compost heap for your leftover vegetables and your leftover disposable biodegradable stuff. And that's the safest way, especially watching after watching this film. We need to go organic, and this is just like a side note. But pesticides and fertilizers are a key thing when it comes to food production because the pesticides that we use get into the soil, and we put seeds in the soil, and the seeds grow in such soil and end up on our tables. So we are actually consuming such chemicals, and it's not safe. That's what I'm trying to say with all this talk. But now, when you get to climate change and food production in terms of how it affects one or the other, if there are no rains, then how will the crops grow? If the predictability of the planting seasons, especially in my country, if we have no predictable patterns for the next maybe five years, how are we supposed to know how we will feed the population in that time? And that leads to the whole conundrum of importing food from outside and buying food and this also has a detrimental effect on the farmers because they're also investing in farming and when the food is scarce they go into losses when there's no rain they go into losses because they've had plowing and all that put into investment so this is where climate change crosses with the food production the unpredictability and unsustainability especially if your country as my country depends mostly on rain-fed irrigation. And this is something we will talk about in a different season on how water is such a huge elephant in the room. Water is the lifeblood of Earth. And just like the Earth, we too are made of water. So when we talk about having a whole country depend on rain-fed irrigation, yet we have countries in the Middle East that are doing so well when it comes to growing food. How do they do it in the desert? What can we talk about underground water reserves and surface water stress? But that's something we'll get a deep dive in during the next season. So water stress both on the ground and surface water has been felt and will will continue to be felt. (laughs) 
So how will the crops grow if all these are uncertainties? And what will we eat? In such a wake, alternative sources of water, like temporal dams, and this is something I've seen recently the Masa is doing, having to set up um, temporal dams for harvesting and storing rainwater, harvesting rainwater, and planting drought-resistant crops is a great option on how we can curb the menace on food production and climate change. Store water, harvest water, or if the place is sufficient enough, just look into groundwater as opposed to surface water. When it comes to climate change and food production, it is exactly what I said in biodiversity in the biodiversity episode. Fix climate change through various mitigation strategies and get biodiversity and healthy food systems as a byproduct. So if we have constant rains with less industrial pollution into the water that therefore feeds our rains, if we have less trees and water and rivers blocked due to climate change, if we fix all that, we will have sustainable patterns of the climate and we will have sustainable food systems and patterns growing across the world, not only in Kenya. All this is directly relational. Climate change, fixing climate change equals biodiversity. We also need to talk about green solutions and greenhouses when it comes to food. Is this something that we need to really now look into that? Since climate change is going to be here for a while and the predictability of rain-fed irrigation food systems will not be so sustainable, should we now start looking into going into greenhouses where the conditions are controlled and more or less conditioned for the plants to grow. But we have a whole debate in terms of greenhouses in my country currently. People prefer the food and crops that are grown out in the field as compared to the ones grown in the greenhouses because most of them are so... I don't know, they look not so real. Like the tomatoes are so red and so ripe. And they don't quite taste as good as the ones in the field. So this is a whole conversation generally. But anyways, when it comes to the health hazards... And uh, this is in relation to storing of food and bringing back empowerment to the farmers at that point. Governments should first devolve agriculture as opposed to making it the central agenda. Each climate zone, this is uh, in the Kenyan context, each climate zone has its different divisions and climate-oriented self. So having... Agriculture as the central, as played by the national government, is quite detrimental because the policies that will be issued out will be one one size fits all. And that's not the case. So devolving agriculture into the different climatic zones, and in my country we call those counties, is the first step to making agriculture sustainable. Each climatic zone is even so divided by borders and should have their own financing systems running independently. It makes money, resources, technology, and it disseminates most of these uh, matters to the farmers faster. And we'll have more food on the table or food in the markets when it's needed. I don't know if this is also the situation in your country where agriculture is actually conducted by the main government, making it uh, a bit slow to disseminate uh, technology, resources, and money. Is this the situation in your country? And I'd like to know more about that, maybe if we have time. But this is the case in mine. So as we run down now, I don't think that this would have taken um, this trajectory because we have so many things that can actually be discussed, including the, the fact that the population is increasing and we need to have a whole conversation on how we, are, we as Earth citizens will feed ourselves 
And that brings the question of GMO. And this has been such a huge battle. I wouldn't say discussion because it's a whole battle in my country right now. Is it safe? Is it not? Should we incorporate it? Should we not? How sure are we of its effects and all that? But that's a whole different topic, which, frankly, I am not honestly willing to speak about because it's so controversial. I'm sitting from a point that I have no idea or much knowledge in regards to that. But we need to honestly have the conversation on where we'll get the food to feed ourselves in the next 20 to 30 years with the increase in population. Also, industries, when it comes to industries, they more or less equal climate change because of the food production and the carbon emissions and other deadly (laughs) emissions they make outside of um, processing food. I, by the way, visited a potato chips company and I asked the manager, like, how do they fry the potatoes and how do they make all these products? And they told me they actually used to use fuel, but recently they swapped to electricity and it's kind of more better for them and also for the consumer. And there's a whole conversation even in the end user product. What happens to all the plastic papers that you use to package all these potato chips? And we had such an interesting conversation. But food production and the food industry is kind of huge to discuss in terms of climate change and the effects it has on us or the effects of climate change we bring by the necessity of having to have food. Anyways, as I conclude... Agroecologists and farmers should be at the center of sustainable systems and not the food barons with money or governments that have no idea (laughs) of how difficult it is to actually get one plate of food on the table. Let the people involved in food production be the ones at the center as opposed to imposing policies and seeds to them. We have a whole report by ETC called the Food Barons Report 2022. It's something really nice to actually read. I will attach it as well. And you will see how different powers actually step into the food industry and the politics. But at the end of the day, they are just not helping. It's making it worse. So we should have agroecologists and farmers at the center of sustainable food systems. The farmers and the agriculturalists generally. So we're out of time, but I will post supportive resources for you to engage in. Hit me up if you want to tell me anything you think about your plate of rice and all the drama that's going on with having plastic rice going, <laughs> being circulated and plastic vegetables. It's crazy. What we eat is very proportional to our health. But how can we control that if the food barons are the ones controlling them and not the farmers and the agriculturalists? Anyways, here's the thing. Here's my call to action. I hope it's not so much of a bother, but here's a, my call to action. Grow your own vegetables at home. And there's no excuse if you have no space. There's a whole report I can attach for you guys if you want to on how to grow like a whole vegetable garden in your balcony and consume less space. I could show you how, but let's keep talking on this and we'll see. The My friend's actually not so up to this on growing, growing their own food. But it's the only safest way. You hear we're having plastic vegetables out here, so grow your own food. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And hey, that was a tasty episode. <laughs> for Earth. <laughs>